You are listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we are working to reflect the diversity of Hermanus as we gather to hear good news and as we scatter to share it. When we previously studied Mark's gospel together, we were looking at three themes that were in the text. A king, his kingdom, and the continual call to discipleship. These were three things that were going on in Mark's gospel. The focus being the king, that is Jesus. His kingdom being something that he was talking about all the time. And the call to discipleship. It's what he was doing as he was going along and collecting strays, (laughs) collecting people calling them to repentance, calling them to faith, and then presenting himself as the object of that faith, as the one that we needed to trust in, rest in, rely upon. And so over the course of this month of September 2021, we are looking at the disciples' life. Last week, we started this series by looking at becoming a disciple. And this week, we want to talk about a disciple on the road. That's all of us on our journey, our path from, well, this life to the next one. And as we do that, we want to revisit some highlights from Mark's gospel. This week, we are left with a very interesting text. Interesting and maybe sometimes confusing and maybe even sometimes controversial in the way that Jesus handles things and in the way that he speaks to those around him. But in order to get us started thinking about this, uh, one of the things that I wanted to bring forward about being on the road, as it were, is the types of people that you meet on the road. Sometimes you meet a tourist on the road. And I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be a tourist, you know, have a little bit of extra cash in your pocket, uh, going and really getting to experience someone else's town in any way that you see fit. It's not something that you need to have a lot of conviction about one way or another. You get to go. You get to enjoy yourself. And then there's the pilgrim. And the pilgrim is that person who has an end destination. They're working toward their end destination. They know that they're going to get there one day. And there's going to be many little stops along the way. Here in South Africa, we have the Cape Camino, Camino meaning the way, Uh, and it's meant to be a personal pilgrimage that you take, uh, presumably diving deeper into yourself and what it is that you have to offer to, well, yourself, which mimics the Camino de Santiago, going from France to Spain through the Pyrenees all the way to the ocean. And this is a also a spiritual pilgrimage that many people more of Catholic orientation take so that they can pray to saints and to Mary and have some sort of spiritual awakening in their own lives. Maybe sometimes you feel like one of these pilgrims or like Christian from Pilgrim's Progress where you're meeting people along the way, gathering information learning what you should and shouldn't do, and eventually one day you know that you will make it to your forever home. And then lastly, you'll meet refugees. That is, people who 
don't really know where home is. They had a dream of home. Maybe they had to leave it once. Perhaps they had to get removed from it once. And in the back of their mind, there's always this dream that one day they'll make it back home. On the other hand, we've all heard it said before, you can't go home again, or you cannot step into the same river twice. This is ancient wisdom, and in case you don't get it right away, it's because a river is always moving. The water is always going from one place to another. The river is never the same. And in the same way, when you leave home, you are never the same. So even if you were to go back, and you thought that things hadn't changed there, you have changed. There's a part of us that we all know we can't go home again. Something has changed. And yet, we continue on, looking for, waiting for that homeland that we have never lived in. And as we come to our text this morning, I want us to keep this picture of discipleship in mind. These three images of tourists and pilgrims and refugees. And let's just walk through the text for a minute. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, between this week and last week, we've skipped over a couple of key events. One in particular is Jesus' transfiguration. It's this heavenly moment on top of a hill <laughs> when Peter and James and John get to see Jesus in his heavenly glory, if you will. They get to see him standing there with Moses and Elijah. They get to see his face shine, just like Moses' did. His garments shine, like Moses' face did. And so they're coming down from the mountain. They've had this, for lack of better terms, heavenly experience. And they're coming back hard into the real world. And when they get into this real world, there seems to be chaos erupting. This chaos is revolving around an argument. And there's different people with different goals and different ideas about what is right and what's wrong. You have the disciples you have the crowd, you have a father, and then you have the scribes. And we all know the scribes. The, the scribes, they are the law people. You know, they're the ones that hang out with the Pharisees. They're the lawyers. They are the people that know God's word very, very well. And on top of that, they know all the laws that have been added to God's word over the years. So Jesus comes down and he looks at the situation and he says, what are you arguing about with them? Presumably talking to the disciples. But then someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. It means he can't speak. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And now Jesus' response to this is pretty great. It's pretty rich. <laughs> because he doesn't just look at his disciples. He doesn't just look at the Father. He doesn't just look at the scribes and the crowds. He looks at everyone 
in who's present and he says, Oh, faithless generation. That is everyone standing around me. You are faithless. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you to pick you up and carry you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The father thinks he's getting down right to the bottom of the issue here. This whole argument revolves around he and his family needing help, needing compassion. And he's not wrong about that. They do need compassion. Jesus is always willing to heal someone. He's always willing to cast out a demon to give us a little foreshadowing of Satan's final defeat. But Jesus now is going to go on and show us that's not really the bottom of the issue. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, this can come across really harsh. Is Jesus really saying, Father of the Son, do you, you just don't believe enough. If you would only believe more, then everything can be fixed. But no, that's not actually what Jesus is demanding of him. Jesus is working now to draw a confession out of this man, just like he did with the Syrophoenician woman last week. And this is what happens when the Father says back to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. This is such a beautiful confession. You and I could look at this and we could say, oh, when I'm weak, when I'm in need, clearly this is the type of thing that I need to say. This is what I need to understand about myself. Well, and it's true. Said another way, what the Father is saying, I have faith. Help everything in me that is not faith. See, what the Father is actually saying is, I'm confessing faith in you, or else I wouldn't be here right now. And Jesus knows that. This man knows who Jesus is. He's come to bring his son to him because he knows that Jesus is the only one that can help. He already has faith. What he needs, though, also is to confess his sin of unfaith, <laughs> his, his sin of unbelief. Before, he just thought he needed a little bit of compassion and a little bit of help to get his son fixed. But now what the father is coming to here is saying, I need a lot of help. I have faith. Now help my unfaith. Do you ever have a conversation with someone and you're listening to them and all of a sudden you realize that they're actually trying to talk to you about something deeper than what is on the surface? For instance, and I know I'm cheating a little bit because I'm the pastor, but let's use it. As a pastor, this happens to me all the time now. And I didn't have the ears to hear it before. It happened before, but I just wasn't listening with the right set of ears. Now, when people find out that I'm a pastor, they say, oh, you're a pastor. And something's going to come out of their mouth after that. One is going to be a confession of not having faith. 
or there's going to be a confession of sin. And in both of these situations, the person that I'm standing across from, sitting across from, talking to, what they really want is to be absolved, <laughs> to be forgiven of what it is that they've done. Now, if the person is a Christian, then I'm more than happy to, you know, use some text from Scripture and let them know that their sins have been forgiven. On the other hand, if this person is not a Christian, and what they really want to do is express some sort of uh, distrust or hatred towards God, now, I might understand where that sentiment is coming from, but at the same time, it is actually my duty to not absolve them, but rather to push them towards knowing Jesus. And maybe that is an outright moment of evangelism or an invitation to a conversation at a later date. Either way, these types of confessions, these types of telling true things come up all the time. Now, the third way that a confession usually comes up is simply by someone confessing that they are a Christian to me. And then they want me to know that we have this thing in common. You probably experience that quite often as well. But what this has caused me to do over the course of a couple of years is to start to listen for those confessions. So that when I'm standing with a Christian, I can let them know that Jesus has forgiven them of those things. Or I can give them the advice that they actually need. Not just advice that says, well, maybe you'll do better next time. Advice that says something like, have you considered going to God and confessing that sin? Have you considered this passage of scripture, which speaks to that and lets you know that that guilt and that shame isn't hanging over you anymore? Here this father has come to Jesus with that type of confession. I have faith. Help my unfaith. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. <laughs> oh, great, you killed him, Jesus. Good one. Now, here in the text, it is actually really difficult to know whether the boy was limp, like a corpse, or if he was uh, off-color, like a corpse, or if he was actually dead. I would tend to believe that he was actually dead. Then Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. This is rising from the dead language, and this should not surprise us at all. There's been other times in the Gospels where Jesus has taken a child by the hand and woken them up, as it were, raised them up from the dead. And it shouldn't surprise us on another level either that always God kills in order to make us alive in Christ. This is what baptism is a picture of for us. This is what the law of God does to us. It slays us. It kills us. And then God uses the good news of his son Jesus to raise us up from the dead, to take us by the hand and to wake us up. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, don't go and start looking through the Gospels and finding all the other demons that you can 
and figuring out all the different ways that Jesus dealt with them and then making a chart and saying, well, this kind of demon can only be driven out with this and this kind of demon can only be driven out with prayer. No, that's unnecessary. <laughs> that's not why Jesus said this. That's not what's going on in this text. Don't believe anyone that tells you that is what's going on in this text. What is Jesus talking about? Well, you might remember that earlier in the gospel accounts, Jesus sent out his disciples as ambassadors. That is, people carrying his name. And in his name, they healed, they cast out demons, and they spread the good news about Jesus. They did all of that in prayerful consideration of who Jesus was. But now, when their master, their teachers, up on top of a hill being transfigured, this heavenly experience is taking place, here they are, down at the bottom of the hill, getting into arguments, and they can't quite figure out why they are unable to cast a demon out of someone. It seems as though, and Jesus is telling them here, that they forgot to do it in his name, that the power does not come from them. It comes from Jesus alone. Now, the other question that we should be asking here is not what kind of demon this is, but rather, who prayed? Jesus didn't pray. The disciples didn't pray. The scribes didn't pray. The crowd didn't pray. Who did pray? The father. The father of this little boy prayed when he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Here's the beautiful thing about all these little conversations that we read in the gospel accounts of Jesus. <laughs> it's that whenever someone is speaking to Jesus, they might not even realize it, but they're praying to God himself. These confessions that they're making in these little conversations are meaningful because they are actually prayers. This father looked at Jesus, right? This is what we tell our kids. What is prayer? It's talking to Jesus, right? That's what we tell them. We tell them that it's talking to God through the power of the Holy Spirit on account of what Jesus has done for them on the cross, and they can freely have a conversation with him at any time. And that's what's happening with this father. He is praying to Jesus. And what else is prayer? Well, you could simply say it's relying on God. True. It's crying out to God because you know that you need help and you can't do it on your own. And this is what this father has done as well. He's come to Jesus and he's crying out. I have faith, but there's all this other stuff in my life that would prove something else to me. <laughs> that's causing me to not have faith. The fact that my son has been like this for his entire life, his entire identity is wrapped up in this evil spirit that is oppressing him. I have faith. Help everything in me that is unfaith. This is our prayer every time that we pray as well. So don't be afraid to pray this. It's not just for when you're feeling weak, when you feel like you don't have it all together. Christian, you are always 100% sinner and 100% saved by the grace of God through Jesus. 100% saint. All the time. And you can pray this prayer at any time. 
I believe, help my unbelief. Because Jesus is our faith. When we pray that, we're actually asking Jesus to fill in all the gaps that we know that we have. They exist because we're constantly looking at other things for our joy and our hope and our satisfaction. And so pray to Jesus. I have faith. Help my unfaith. Which brings us to our big idea for today. Jesus saves doubters and failures and even the faithful. I'll let you decide who that is in the text today, although I think everyone's a mixed bag in this case. Let's take it back to our illustration at the beginning of the sermon. Take it back to this little series that we're doing this month on discipleship. Those people that you'll meet on the road. Everyone's represented in this story. The tourists, for instance. Maybe that's some of the people in the crowd who are just there to watch for the enjoyment and the excitement of it all. But it's also the scribes. Those people that are following after Jesus, trying to keep him to the letter of the law. They're here using God's gift of law for their own purposes and not really looking forward to a home in the future with God forever because they think they have it now. They think that they are secure in the promised land, even though they're not. You have the pilgrims, those disciples that are following Jesus, stop to stop, watching him, observing him, learning things from him, growing. They know that they're on the path homeward, but they're not quite sure when they're going to get there yet. They're not sure when Jesus is going to fully establish his kingdom, when all things are going to be made right. But they know it's coming. And they're waiting. But then you have the refugees, like this boy and his father. They know that something's not right about this world, about this place that they call home. They know that there's a better home. They're waiting for that better home. They're like exhausted refugees fatigued and vulnerable and craving rest, looking for peace and rest and, and this home where they can find joy. And I know that each of us are somewhere on this spectrum right now. But what I would invite you to know is that whether you like it or not, you are a refugee in this world, in between homes, we're constantly uttering the, the dreaded words of, are we there yet? And do we have to go? <laughs> and always faced with the dilemma of when we get to where we want to be, realizing it's not really what we've always been looking for, hoping for, wanting for, waiting for. And that's because God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. So rest in and rely upon Jesus. When you are faithless, He is faithful, and He will carry you through to the very end until you are no longer a refugee roaming this world, until you are finally at home with Him forever. Amen. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.